Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Europe, 
Newspapers around the world covered the unfolding story as scholars debated the genuineness of the leather strips. Ultimately, the scroll was deemed a forgery and Shapira a forger. However, beginning in 1947, ancient scrolls discovered in the Qumran caves near the Dead Sea led us to ask, were the critics wrong? The Moses scroll documents the details of the entire saga based upon what we know today, including a chronological telling of the fascinating story based upon 19th century reports, an assessment of the genuineness of the Shapira scroll, a new transcription of the manuscript as seen through the eyes of the 19th century, best Hebraist, and the author's own translation of the original 16 letter strips with a commentary and notes. Roth is a researcher, writer, educator, and author of the Moses Scroll and a popular blog related to emerging Shapira research. He's traveled extensively to Israel over the past decade and participated in archaeological excavations in Jerusalem and at Biblical Tamar, south of the Dead Sea, where he has mapped and surveyed the desert regions of the Negev associated with biblical narratives. He's been able to walk history and live history and read history. It's a rather fascinating career and one that a lot of us actually probably envy to a certain degree, although I kind of like some of the necessities of life that are probably not available in some of these regions. So welcome to the show, Ross. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Barbara, thanks so much. It's an honor to be with you and I'm excited about this. You know, you you invited me all the way back in September of 2021, and I was sort of surprised uh, when I learned that you were booked up until now. So I'm March the 28th has finally arrived, and I've been waiting on pins and needles for this. Well, it, it's it's such it's such an exciting story, and what I love about it is when something has elements of the truth in it that just won't lay do- down and die and is still around 140 years later, you know, you have to, you have to know that there's truth here. And, you know, it, it's not so much that, that now we have the ability to probably date material like this, but, of course, it's no longer around. But, but the story itself is just such an amazing one. And as soon as I started reading about it, I, I, I kept saying to myself, wait a minute, there's, there's so much more here. There's more to this story than just the the dead facts, and um, you brought them all out in your book brilliantly without, you know, without getting too far off the, off field, and of course, I'll go all the way off field into the bleachers, but um, <laughs> I, I, I have well, nothing restricting, I can, I, can, I can ask questions that have nothing to do with the reality of what actually is there, but um, so, so tell us about this poor man who, who really... I, I, I believe that he was genuine, and I believe that he believed in what he had, and I don't think this man ever would have stopped. Well, I tell you, Barbara, I think you've nailed it. That's exactly the way I feel. Uh, I first learned of this story. You know, the question is, who is or who was Moses Shapira? I had never yeah. heard of Moses Shapira. But I received an email from Dr. James Tabor back in December of 2019. I know you've had him on your show. And yes. Dr. Tabor knew that I was interested in uh, the subject of 
Deuteronomy and Moses and this little scroll, which I'd like to talk to your audience about later. But Moses, uh, according to the Bible, Moses wrote this scroll. So I was doing all this research. Dr. Tabor sent me a note December and said, uh, 2019, and said, hey, have you heard of this book that just came out? And it was a book by an author by the name of Hanan Pigay, and he wrote a book called The Lost Book of Moses. And, of course, I ordered it right away, as did James, and we began to study. Other friends, my friends, the Tylers, began to study it. Well, when I got into the story, it was one of those books that, I'm not talking about my own book here, Barbara. I think it's good as well. Uh-huh. Thank you for the compliments. But uh, but this book was just very well written, and it told the story of Moses Shapira. But I had questions when the book was done, and it, it was just one of those things. I don't know if you've ever come across a subject like this. I just couldn't put it down. It consumed my every ounce of energy. I mean, I just poured myself into it. So I started looking researching, finding old newspaper reports, everything I found led me to a different conclusion than Hanan Tagay. Hanan Tagay didn't end up with as positive a view of Moses Shapira as I did. So I started with the question of who was Moses Shapira and what do we know about this notorious scroll that literally shook the foundations of the world at the time. Think about in the day, every major newspaper around the world covered the story. As it unfolded, people were, they couldn't wait to get the newspaper to read the next thing coming out of the news. So as the story began to map out, I realized that most people since 1872, Barbara, have had a negative opinion of Moses Shapira. When you look up Moses Shapira, you're going to find things like swindler, fake, forger. Most people believe that he was unethical. He was in this whole thing for personal gain. And the best case scenario that I would find early on, for the most part, was that he was a helpless dupe, a victim of other bad people. But Then I began to uncover that that wasn't the opinion of all. There's another view, a favorable view in various degrees, and I can just quickly run through. In the 1950s, after after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, people asked the question, hey, wait a minute, what happened to that, that leather scroll or manuscript that Shapira had? Everybody kind of dismissed it then, but... But now with what we found, maybe we ought to look at it again. So 1950s, Menachem Mansour, a scholar out of Wisconsin, he put forward basically a call for reassessment. And he said, let's look at this again. And it was met with a lot of, uh, I guess, opposing voices. Uh, And it it really wasn't successful. I mean, there was very little attention. But in the 60s, John Mark Allegro, you may know him as one of the famous Dead Sea Scroll scholars, Uh, another Uh Dead Sea Scroll scholar by the name of Helen Jefferson, uh, they kind of picked the ball up. Uh, John Mark Allegro wrote a book called The, The Shapira Affair. 
Now, when this book came out, it inspired an Israeli by the name of Yoram Sabo. You and I talked earlier in the week, and I don't know if you've had a chance to watch his documentary, but Yoram is probably the most, um, he's probably the longest running researcher on Shapira in the world today. He started in the 70s, and it became sort of a, an obsession with him. He admits this. We, we're called, people like us are called Shapira maniacs. And uh, <laughs> so he's been on this since the 1970s. Uh, he's written a book. He wrote, a, he produced and directed a film called uh, uh, Shapira and I. There are a few others, Rabbi Fred Reiner, um, some scholars, James Charlesworth, James Tabor, Matthew Hamilton, and then me. Um, I got the bug. I couldn't put it down. I wrote my book, and two weeks later, this, this is one of those things a lot of your listeners may call synchronicity. At the close of my book, I basically called for a reassessment, similar to those that I followed. And I was hopeful and prayerful that perhaps the academic world would look again at the case of Shapira, which I've called the most controversial case in the history of biblical scholarship. And let me tell you, two weeks after my book came out, my book sold initially, you know, my friends and my family and, uh-huh. you know, thing, you know, not, it didn't, it didn't knock the, the top off of the New York Times bestseller list, but a scholar by the name of Professor Don Dershowitz, to the day, two weeks later, published a book uh, on the same subject. I, I think my book has 218 pages. His has exactly the same number or right around. They both told the story of Shapira. They both gave a transcription of the manuscript, which has been missing, as you told your listeners at the opening of the show, uh, and uh, both contained a translation. Now, Dershowitz's book is very academic. Uh, it's got a lot of Hebrew. It talks a lot about the grammar and things that most readers, unless they're aficionados of such things, might not be able to follow as well, but it's a brilliant piece. When his book came out, Barbara, front-page news on the New York Times, uh, it, was, it was just a watershed. It it actually brought to fruition my biggest hopes and dreams, and that is put this case back in the court of the scholars and let them once again consider everything that was put before the scholars in the 19th century. <clears throat> they just didn't know what they had in front of them is the way that I understand it. and And in their defense... They had never seen anything like this, Barbara. Think about this. This is before 70 years, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have a story about Bedouin who find in a cave, not so far from the Dead Sea, uh, wrapped in linen, coated in some sort of asphalt substance, and when they're opened it up, it's written in Paleo-Hebrew, uh, so many of the details sound so much like the Dead Sea Scrolls that 
you have to look at it again. It's just uncanny, the resemblances between the two stories. So, so this, is, this is the quest that I'm on. Another aspect of this is I feel like deep within me that Moses Shapira, as a man, as a person, as a father, as a, a seeker after God, he needs vindication. Now, we've been going for 150 years down this trail of uh, basically trying to ruin someone's reputation, and I say it's high time uh, that we restore him to his proper place. And that place, by the way, is something that I think puts him as one of the leading explorers, discoverers uh, of all time. Well, I, I know that, you know, he had a, a previous experience with selling something that um, was questionable, but, you know, when you, when you go into the, 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 um, the, the material on the, the figures that he was selling, he, he himself did not, he questioned their authenticity so that, so yeah. that it was not that he was trying to shove something off uh, on somebody unawares. They just kept saying, give us more and, you know, and, you know, just give us more. We want more. And he, he did that. And when right. some of them did turn up as being forgeries, then he was blamed. But you can't blame him because he was, you know, he had, he had explained that he didn't think that they, that they were all authentic. And, and then when you get to the scroll um, and, and they tried to say, well, you, you tried to cheat us before, but, you know, when he couldn't get a really good um, report on it, he put the scroll into into a bank vault and he let it sit there for five years, and mm-hmm. he continued to sell his documents to the to um, museums and to uh, collectors, and he had a wonderful reputation. I mean, they right. they were they were continued to come to him, and then when he brought them out yet again and tried to get a more favorable um, review of them, in spite of the fact that people weren't giving him the benefit of saying, yes, this is real, he still continued to be able to sell to museums and private collectors, which tells me that while he may have had a couple of missteps or they gave him credit for a couple of missteps, right. I, I think I don't, I don't believe his honesty was really that much in question. Well, I'm glad you said that, and, and you brought up one of the keys that is uh, behind the negative assessment of Mr. Shapira's, um, his reputation. And and what we know, here's what we know. In 1868, the discovery of one of the greatest archaeological uh, discoveries of all time took place. Uh, A Prussian minister by the name of uh, uh, Frederick was across, Frederick Klein was across in Transjordan, and his Arab host, told him about what would become known as the Moabite Stella or the Mesha Stella. And I know that you've read the book and your listeners, if they read it, they'll recognize this was, this is an incredible tale in and of itself. But on the wave of that discovery in 1868, there was a demand, there was a cry for 
more, more, more. What else did the sands of ancient Moab contain? And so, in fact, Frederick Klein actually wrote that it was a desideratum that that a study of the land and artifacts from the land of Moab would be great for our understanding of the Bible because the Moabite Stella tells the story of, uh, similar to what we find in the Bible's second book of Kings, chapter 3, and it talks about a a battle between uh, King Mesha of Moab and the Israelites in concert with the children of Judah and, and so forth. Well, when this was discovered, the whole world, now you have to understand that in 19th century Jerusalem, uh, there were a lot of discoverers coming to the land, explorers. Everybody wanted a, a piece of the action. Well, in, in the case of the Moabite Stella, even though a Prussian was involved in its first sighting, thanks to a man that I know you're familiar with from reading the book, Monsieur Clermont Ganneau, uh, who represented the French at the time, uh, swooped in, as we might say, nicely and uh sort of snatched that treasure from the prussians so whenever right after this this is 1868 we know from shapira's personal notes we have a lot of them by the way uh aside from the the new york uh i'm sorry aside from all of the newspaper articles we have uh, evidence that Shapira says it's in 1871 when he gets into the world of antiquities. Now, before this, he was a bookseller. He's Jewish. He's from Kamenets Podolsk, which is located in western Ukraine in the modern world. Um, in, in, he's born in 1830. He moves to the land of Israel in 1855. He sets out on a journey with his grandfather. In 1856, he's in Jerusalem. Shortly thereafter, in other words, a little more than a decade, it's when all the action is going on in the land of Israel. You have all these competing nations sending their Bible societies over with spade in one hand and Bible in the other, and they're looking for, really what they're looking for, Barbara, is proof that the Bible is true. So they're going to these places, they're doing archaeology, although it wasn't as established a science as it is today. And, uh, but on the wake of this discovery in Moab, it expands the search. And so when people start looking, and Shapira is one of those, he teams up with a, a guy by the name of Salim Al-Khari, Al-Kari, in that language, is associated with the word reader. He's known as one, at least according to himself, as one who can read and write in any language. Well, he teams up with Shapira, and through contacts that he has in the Transjordan, he begins to bring treasures from the sands of Moab, as he puts it, to Shapira's shop, the first wave of these arrives in April of uh, 1872. And once they arrive in in his shop, uh, people start to notice them. Word reaches Germany. 
And uh, one particular professor by the name of Constantine Schlotman immediately believes that these are real, as do others, I might add, including people like Claude Condor and Kitchener, people that are famous because of their work through the Palestine Exploration Fund. So everybody initially, can't say how long, but at least initially, were excited about these as being potential, uh, authentic, ancient relics. Over time, thanks to, guess who, Monsieur Claremont Gunneau again, these particular items are ultimately labeled as forgeries. But as you said, Shapira even thought that some of the later batches uh, weren't authentic, and he made that very clear to his potential buyers. But you know what they said, Shapira, you just keep bringing us these things. Word, uh, according to most sources, he probably made the equivalent of about $400,000 off of the sale of these items uh, to the oh, German right. government. Yeah, that's a pretty good, ch- that's pretty good hunk of change there. Yeah. But like you said, once the word gets out that it's a forgery, even though in the end Shapiro was clear from what we can tell from the records, he's considered a dupe. They blame Salim Alkari, and he basically is, is the one. He gets off, but his name is still associated with this great uh, forgery. So that's a bad thing. When he gets this manuscript in 1878, uh, he's really amazed with this, and he believes it's real. He sends a letter to Constantine Schlotman, who is one of the only scholars who still believes in the authenticity of the Moabitica. So he, I think he thinks, this guy's on my side. But... Schlopman has been so hurt. His reputation has been so hurt with the news that it might be a forgery uh, that he writes a scolding letter back to Shapira with the help of another scholar by the name of Delich. And he says, how dare you claim that this is authentic? I mean, this is a long letter. I have copies we've translated from German. He lights Shapira up. So Shapira doesn't want to stir up this proverbial hornet's nest again, so he does go to Bergheim Bank in Jerusalem, and he locks the scroll away. And the scroll stays there for about five years, but in the interim period, he's dealing in scrolls, as you said. He's, he's becoming more and more familiar with the scrolls that are being found, some of these old scrolls. And he he also reads a book by a German scholar that make him think, now wait a minute, even though the scroll manuscripts that I have read differently than our Bible, that may not be so much of a problem. That's when he gets it out again, and the whole saga begins. Now from the time... He gets the scroll manuscripts out of the bank around uh, Easter of 1883. It's only one year, Barbara, before they find him dead in a hotel room in Rotterdam. This is a fast-paced year. 
Yeah, and like I said to you, it doesn't make sense to me because he was still successful. He was still selling to museums and private collectors. He was still he had he had a reputation. And yeah. you know the the well, everybody makes mistakes and and I understand archaeologists. I mean, they they have their they have a very difficult line they have to they have to kind of walk because you know as soon as if they make too many wrong decisions and choices they lose their their credibility they lose their reputation they lose their jobs so absolutely you know they they had to almost stick together even though some of them most probably felt stupid after the dead sea scrolls were dis- discovered for sure but when you when you talk about um Shapira being found dead in his room. Here's here's where I don't. I just it doesn't feel right. And so many things in in today's world happen that don't feel right because the people who are controlling the situation are so powerful they can they can they can make something be okay even when it's not. And I think that this is one of those cases. I don't believe that he committed suicide. I believe he was murdered. Well, you're not alone in that. There are others who put forth that theory. Um, you know, I've considered both, and, and for me, I'm still open to both. Obviously, the story is that that's what happened, that, that after the rejection of the manuscript, he does write a letter. He writes a short note. He's up. He's totally devastated, and here's why. He was led to believe, and this is clear from all that I've read, that Christian Ginsburg, who was the scholar, great scholar, you can look him up. I mean, your listeners can can find a lot on this guy. Brilliant Hebraist of the day. Um, he had the manuscript from, uh, for the most part, of August of 1883, and he was publishing serially. Uh, parts of the manuscript, the Hebrew transcription. You know, he's looking at this ancient document. I believe it's ancient. And he's taking it from the Paleo-Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew script, and he's transcribing it in three installments in modern Hebrew and then providing a translation with some notes here and there. Now, but he's not indicating in any way that he thinks it's a forgery. What he's doing is he's he's telling the readers he's sort of stringing them along. Now he's got a he's got an audience. They're waiting on bated breath for the great biblical scholar Ginsburg to say yes or no. Does this manuscript date to the time of Moses in the Bible in some way or somewhere from that period up until still ancient? Or is it a modern forgery, and he just strings them along? Well, this begins in August, but here's the thing. Claremont Gano again. Now, I make him the bad guy in my book, but I think he rightly earns this role. I don't just make this up. He, not, I'm not suggesting he's not a brilliant scholar, but, but there are underlying motives on his part. I think part uh-huh. of which he doesn't doesn't like Shapira. I mean, I think that's part of it, but I think I've discovered a reason that's part of my next book, so I'm not going to get into that too much yet. 
But when Shapira shows up, this is about two-thirds of the way through Ginsburg's release of the, the manuscript contents serially, uh, Gins, uh, Mr. Gano shows up. This is the day after Prime Minister Gladstone goes to the British Museum. It, the, the strips are on display. Two strips are being displayed for the public because they love this story. So Gladstone goes, and Shapira and Ginsburg meet with him. This is the prime minister. Now, uh-huh. if here's, here's my thought. Maybe you can, you can tell me if I'm thinking wrong here. Not only is Gladstone the prime minister, but he is sponsoring some of Ginsburg's research with thousands of dollars, like government money. You would think that if Ginsburg thought it was fake, he would have whispered to Gladstone or maybe told his advisors, tell the, tell the man not to bother to come and see it. It's a fake. But they meet out and they're talking about the manuscript. You know, oh, yeah, look at the script. It, it looks a little bit like the script of the Moabite Stella and so forth. No indication it's fake. Next day, Gano shows up. He publishes on the 22nd of August a report that his theory sticks to this day. It was recently uh, put out in Tagay's book that the way Shapira or whomever forged it did it, they cut the bottom portion of a, an existing Torah scroll, probably a Yemenite scroll, which is made of thicker animal leather, and faked it and then made it look old. And that theory is still around today. But right after his paper comes out, all of a sudden, Mr. Ginsburg comes out with his assessment. And you know what, Barbara? It looks an awful lot like uh, Claremont Gano's. It's like they, they almost wrote off the same page. So, well, do, you think that, do you think that possibly by making it appear to be a fraud, they could get the price down so they could pick it up and then turn it around as authentic? Hey, that's an interesting theory, and I, I think that it, it could very well be. There are rumors that Mr. Ginsburg, and I'm not saying that this is true, but there's certainly in writing, uh, in fact, when Ginsburg died, in his obituary, it even says that he ultimately came to possess uh, the manuscript. I, I think we've successfully disproven that, I want to say, but I'm still looking at it. But wouldn't it be something if the guy who rejects it or is credited with proving it was a forgery picks it up at a good price later? Well, we know he wanted to well, buy it, and he really well, yeah, he did. He 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 said that he he said it. it well, he, I I read it in the book, so he must have actually said it that, that he would yep. he would pick it up for two hundred somethings. And you got that it, it exactly. just to me. To me, it's sort of like if I'm going to buy a used car, I'm going to find scratches, dents, and all sorts of things yeah. wrong with it, so that I can get the price down. So, what better right. way to get the price down than to declare it a, a fake and then keep it in your possession for another ten years and then bring it out as as whoops, I was wrong. It's authentic. That's right. Well, you know, and it's funny that 
that is a very plausible thing that, that we're – it's one of the options that's on my short list of where did the manuscript go. But to your point just a moment ago about um, how did he end up uh, deceased in a hotel room in Rotterdam, he does write. Now, after Ginsburg's article appears in the Times of London, now it's everybody is against him. And I think he's utterly shocked at the determination of Ginsburg. I really feel that. And so he writes a letter to Ginsburg. It's only a few lines. And he basically says, you've made a fool of me claiming that these things are false. He said, I don't know if I can survive this shame. And then he says, oh, I'm going to uh, Berlin in a few days, faithfully yours, Moses Shapiro. And then in the upper left-hand corner, Barbara, in small print, he writes in Hebrew a note which he's basically countering in just a few coded words one of the accusations put forward by Ginsburg. So I don't feel like the, the note is interpreted by many, including the contemporary newspaper writers, oh, Ginsburg's threatening to off himself because he's been caught red-handed. You know, he's, he's, uh -uh. he's a swindler and he caught – and they even write – this is horrible. Someone actually wrote in a newspaper article about Shapira, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, if, if he does this, you know, it's no loss. I mean, it's just hateful stuff. So, well, that's why. That's why I, you know, Gins, Ginsburg is 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 my right at the top of my list because, I mean, frankly, I've said things like, "I'll just die if this doesn't happen," and you know, there's mm -hmm. no reason I'm not I'm not gonna die. And yeah, I would I would say that that, that Shapiro was probably being a tad melodramatic, but. It would seem to me that Ginsburg knew that he was possibly going to see another um, authority or expert or whatever when he when he went um, to Holland and didn't want that to happen. So he stopped him by killing him. And and, and whether it was his hand or another's, I think that he he benefited the most from it because he was able to pick up the uh, the scrolls. And well, it's they yeah. Go ahead. You, 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 say, you say in a couple of places, you know, he was shot with a revolver, he shot with a rifle, he was on the bed, he was on the floor. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was it was one or two. You know, how do you commit suicide twice? You know, with right. different weapons. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, now in today's world, we have the benefit of all these great crime shows that are thrilling. And I'm telling you, as I <laughs> looked at the facts of this case, Barbara. All I can think about is this would make a thrilling movie or a series because all of the characters, all of the intrigue, all the mystery and the ups and downs. And, and you know, up until I published my book, and, and I, I want to give credit, there's so many brilliant scholars out there uh, who've written both for and against uh, the authenticity case. You know, I, I stand on the shoulders of giants, but one question I had was, why does he go to the Netherlands? I mean, you, you would think if he's dejected, his manuscript has been rejected, my thought would be, go home. I mean, 
He's got a wife, and one of his daughters is there in Jerusalem. Another daughter is in Berlin. But what we find is that just five days after he writes this note, which was interpreted as the end for Shapira, uh, he ends up in a hotel in Amsterdam, and he writes a letter on the 28th of August, and he doesn't, he's not anymore, you know, pouting. He's giving good biblical evidence as to why the rejection of his scroll is not based in reality, and it's excellent reading, mm-hmm. a little bit deep unless somebody's into that kind of thing, but but he is showing great scholarly ability by demonstrating this can't be fake because of this, this, and this. Well, I just one night, you know how when you're researching, I said, uh, what was going on in the Netherlands in 1883? And I, I, don't, I don't think I worded it any more eloquently than that. And I hit yeah. go, and thanks, thanks to... Uh, as we say, Dr. Google, uh, there was a mention of this big conference. It was a, a colonial exposition, uh, uh, sort of like a World's Fair. It was going on at that time in the Netherlands. And not only was this World's Fair there, they had religious experts there, they had, but they also were hosting, it just so happens, that it was the sixth annual International Congress of Semitic Scholars. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's why he's there. This thing Uh had been, uh, you know, everybody that was anybody, in fact, Claremont Gunnow was there. Uh, Ginsburg is at least quoted in the literature, but all of the names that I had become familiar with from my research it was a sort of a who's who in the biblical world. They're there. And so I'm thinking, that's what he's doing there, Barbara. He's selling. He's trying to get another buyer for his scroll. He's not pouting in a hotel room. You know, and he's selling that. We know because of Yoram Sabo's research and Matthew Hamilton and, and these guys, we know, and, and I've confirmed their research, that he's he's making deals, he's riding back and forth with Dr. Ryu at the British Museum, and he's saying, hey, you know, I'll take 20 pounds for this manuscript. I also have this other one. That doesn't sound like a man at the at the end of his life and just distraught. He's a businessman. Not man. at all. Yeah. Well, you know, this is not the only time in history that something like this has happened. Um, uh, Lewis and Clark, the, the two guys that you know were sent out west by Jefferson right. were were they were they were given codes to write back to Jefferson. They were they were sent to discover certain things on their journey, and on the way back, I can't remember if it was Lewis or Clark. I, I one of them was bringing his journal back for the president because there was important information in it that would change really the course of the whole country. And mm-hmm. um, he, was, he was discovered, um, he committed suicide by shooting himself in the head twice, mm. and um, the journal was, was stolen. So mm. obvious, obviously you don't shoot yourself in the head twice, and the journal was stolen, and so we'll never know what was in it. But here's another case of somebody's preventing material from getting out into the public record or the public venue, and this was in the early yep. early 1800s. So 
so it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that that he was murdered and he was murdered to prevent him from actually finding someone who would say it was authentic and give him credibility. Well, you know, there there's so many of these uh different cases that you have to look at and say have I have I got all the facts in front of me and there's so there's such a shroud of mystery surrounding I guess you would say the final days. Uh, one, we have the police report from the Rotterdam police that describes what happens at the end. And so we know that Shapira started in Amsterdam. He moved from Amsterdam to Bloemendal. All of this, by the way, his final six months take place in about a 30-mile radius. Now, if a person were to Google Shapira, they're going to read stories that he went insane and he wandered Europe for the last six months of his life, leaving stuff in various European hotels, and they paint him as a man who's lost his mind. But but what we know is that his moves were very strategic. If he's in Amsterdam for this Continental Congress, uh, if he then moves to Blumenthal, if he then moves to Rotterdam, we know that there's a shipyard there, and there's a very popular ship line that runs between the United States and uh, Rotterdam. So now I don't have proof of this, but one theory is is that his intention was to go elsewhere for a potential buyer. Now, I'm, I'm researching this right now, but what, what happens is he checks into this hotel sometime in February. We're... We're not sure exactly when, in Rotterdam. And he's there, and then on March the 9th, he'd been there for about 20 days. March the 9th of 1884, uh, people within the hotel, you know, like the people at the desk, if you were staying somewhere for a few weeks, you know, people get to know you. How you doing, Mr. Shapira? Good, how are you? And So they know him, and they realize that they haven't seen him since Friday evening. And so they get a little bit worried. Someone from the desk, uh, presumably, goes to the door. They knock on the door. No answer. Now they're concerned. And they contact the police. The police go to the room. They listen to the story of the people there at the hotel, L.C. Wicker's guest house. Uh, they enter the room. And as you said, the, the later reports give varying details he was on the bed he was on the floor there was a revolver with one round missing they get all these details well i read the police report i had it translated from someone uh, who is dutch they can read it in the original and all it basically says is that guest shapira they tell a brief few sentences about their being notified uh, of of the concern over guest shapira they said they go in, uh, basically just that they found the deceased. They later report that he was looked at by a medical examiner. Uh, it does appear that he died of gunshot, uh, but I don't think anything in the report, I'm trying to recall, gives a whole lot more detail. Medical examiner looks at him. They find, you know, his name. They, they basically then, because he doesn't have family there, they send him to a place called the Drinkling, which in its in the uh, Dutch 
it's associated with people who have drowned at sea, that they don't know who they belong to, basically. So he's, he's basically put there, and they bury him. And we now know where his grave marker is. I don't know. I haven't been there to find it, although I've traveled some with the research and plans to do more. But uh, it's a tragic ending, and what we know is that when he died, the manuscript strips are, are in this. Here's what we know. Fifteen of those strips, remember there are 16 total, 15 uh-huh. are still at the British Museum. And all of a sudden, we find in the record, this is in the British Museum archive, it's labeled 41294. Remember that number. If we travel together, together Barbara, we're going to have to go look at this file. 41294. Okay. <laughs> so there's this letter, and it's, it's from Bond, Mr. Bond, who is uh, over the, the British Museum. He writes a letter to guess who? Ginsburg. And he says, Ginsburg, Widow Shapira wrote a letter asking about her husband's manuscript. Now, that strikes me as odd. Yes. First of all, it, it feels funny. Like, why are you writing Ginsburg? Um, now, it could just be, this is the one plausible explanation is, you know, Ginsburg had put so much time and effort into this and I just thought you should know the latest of our saga is that the widow is looking for her husband's manuscript. But we don't have a record of them responding to widow Shapira. What we next see is the 16th of July, 1885, um, a year and two months later, that there is an auction by the famous Sotheby's, uh, auction house in which Shapira's manuscript sells. Now we know that that Ginsburg was at that auction, and some have thought that he bought it. But we we've later, thanks to I, I believe Matthew Hamilton is the one who tracked these details out. Uh, he's uh, the Australian researcher that I'm complimenting so much because of his brilliance in this. It sold to a a bookseller by the name of Bernard Corich. This is July 1685. Then, uh, the next time we see mention of it in writing, it was put on display at this Anglo-Israel expedition in 1887. There's a description. All of that's in the book. And then, we, we we see it in the catalog of Bernard Corich, Uh, in 88, and then we don't see it anymore. Now, this led to a lot of speculation as to what in the world happened to the manuscript, particularly after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can imagine the story is similar to, I mean, we need to find this thing. Maybe he was right, some said. So, Everybody, not everybody, but quite a few theories began to surface, you know, like what happened to it. One was that a guy by the name of Nicholson bought it, and then he had a fire in his home in, uh, I think it was 1890, 
uh, may not be accurate on the date, but he the, the theory was put forward that in that fire, you know, maybe he bought the scroll because he did buy some manuscripts tied to Shapira, but Shapira's a scroll merchant. You know, there are hundreds yeah. of manuscripts that he brought. So anyway, the hope was all lost on finding where the scroll went. People basically just said, well, I'll probably burn up. Doesn't matter. It was a forgery anyway. And then Matthew Hamilton uh, and another woman by the name of Patricia Francis, working independently about the same time, came across something quite incredible. We now know because of their work, primarily Matthew's, because he's tied with all the Shapiro research, that a man by the name of Philip Brooks Mason ended up with the scroll. This is this is kind of a fascinating twist because we lost it. And then when Philip Brooks Mason, who's into natural science, he was part of a group in Burton-on-Trent, England, called uh, – it was a, a Natural History and Archaeology Society. Um, once we had the name, then it was just a short step for other researchers to figure out, oh, here's a reference. March the 8th, 1889, in a meeting in Burton-on-Trent of this society, Philip Brooks Mason gave a talk, and it was called The Forgery of Shapira. And it describes the story about how it was a stormy night and only a few showed up. But those who went got to hear the story and actually saw the scroll the last time it was seen. March the 8th, 1889, and now it's gone again. So we're looking, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, the hunt is back on. So I, I went with uh, my friends, the Tylers, Dave and Patty. We went to uh, this past year, even with all the COVID restrictions, we went to England. We spent time in Burton-on-Trent chasing down clues and going to some of the locations that we knew to search. We met people there. Uh, we went to Germany also this past year, spent time, made contacts at the Berlin Staatsbibliothek. And look, I'm telling you, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we don't find this. That is my hope, my prayer. And I'm pretty confident that with the people we have working on this team, that it's going to be here. And uh, I, I mean, I think we're going to find it. I really do. Oh, I, I agree with you. What what country was Ginsburg from? Uh, he was actually from Poland, but he, in other words, his origin is from there, similar to Shapira's. He, here we have another Jewish person, a convert to Christianity from that part of the world. Uh, Ginsburg ended up in England, and and so that's how he gets pulled into the story. Uh, because of his, uh, he's known as one of the greatest Hebrew to this day, one of the greatest Hebraists, particularly in dealing with manuscripts. His uh, um, his life work basically is a book. I think it's called. Now get this: the Hebraica Masoretica uh, Critical Edition of the Hebrew Bible. Real long title, big words. Uh, in which he surveys a lot of the texts 
that we have that referenced, you know, text of the Hebrew Bible. He was big in searching for what is the earliest text and so forth. So, but yeah, it's it's kind of it's interesting it, when people draw. By the way, when Ginsburg is credited with busting Shapira for his crime, as they would like to put it, there was an oh. article that appeared in the paper, and Shapira is drawn with stereotypical, hateful, anti-Semitic features. You can you can imagine, your listeners can just imagine what those are. And and he's Ginsburg is this European looking they're both from the same area, they're both Jewish and yet one is depicted in one way and the other is, is depicted in stereotypical form. And Shapira's got his finger dipped in ink like I caught you ink handed you thief you rotten person um, <laughs> well, man it's, it's horrible for those for those who are not biblical scholars um, I'd like to go into a little bit about the difference between what the Bible now has as Deuteronomy and what mm-hmm. do the scrolls say because they're, 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 they're really quite different. The scrolls themselves are very short, and Deuteronomy is several chapters. So, you know, mm-hmm. what is the, the major difference that, that they, they are? I, I know that, um, you know, we spoke briefly before the show about how uh, the, 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 the teaching books of Moses were, were not that long, they were to, they they were the Jews were told to read it every night and every right. every morning, and and if you if you did that with uh, five chapters of Deuteronomy or whatever, you'd be reading forever. So right. there, there are major differences. What are the major differences? Excellent question, and this just happens to be uh, my main passion, my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book attributed to Moses. So you have, for your listeners, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these five make up what we call the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses as they're referred to. And most academics, I'm talking in the scholarly, biblical scholarly world, put Deuteronomy as last. They believe that, first of all, let me just say, most biblical scholars are what I would refer to as minimalist, meaning if you interviewed most biblical scholars, they would say, look, there, were, there probably wasn't even a Moses, Barbara. I mean, and if there was, he probably was illiterate. And if he could write, he certainly could, you know, just goes on and on. And, and right. so what they do is they begin to look at the text, particularly – in the 19th century, scholarship began to question the fundamentalist claims that said Moses wrote the five books. And so um, what I found interesting, a few years ago, I began to look at this very subject. And one of their criticisms is this. If Moses wrote the five books, do we find it, this is what they would say, do we find it a bit odd that Moses would write in the third person? Now, so here's the deal. 
if if I'm writing a book, and I, and I did write a book, is it more natural for me to say, and Ross did this research, or to say, I did this research? Uh-huh. It struck early investigators as a little bit strange to read that most of the, the five books attributed to Moses say things like, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, eh. Seemed like a better way to say that would be the Lord spoke unto me. So they put a big question mark by that. Just kind of get this in your head. Another thing is he he says things like Moses was the meekest man on all the earth. That's like me saying I am the best looking guy that you've ever interviewed and I'm humble <laughs> about it. Well, both yeah, of those right. probably are exaggerations. So <laughs> but but the idea is that these things begin question. Here's another one. Is it likely that I'm going to write my own obituary? Probably not. The book of yeah. Deuteronomy happens to say, and Moses died, he was 120 years old, and God buried him. Notice the third person. It yeah. sounds like someone else wrote this. Now, before I knew about Shapira, I'd, I'd never heard the man's name, I was fascinated with this subject of what did Moses actually write? And, and if he wrote something, now I sound like these minimalists almost, but I'm not, but if he did write something, what, what could we ascertain with any degree of certainty from the text of the Bible? And so I began to study. And one thing that I realized, not unnoticed by many biblical scholars before me, is that Deuteronomy, within the book of Deuteronomy, and only Barbara within the book of Deuteronomy, are there traces of first person. In other words, there are places where the narrative will start, and it sounds like a narrator, sounds like someone other than Moses, and then it switches, and it does say things like, and the Lord spoke unto me, saying, well, now that's interesting. It doesn't occur like that in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, only in Deuteronomy and only in certain sections. To, to just briefly tie in the Moses scroll, this, uh, this scroll that Shapira came to possess, it's written in the first person. Even even in your your Bible, our Bible, uh, in the Ten Commandments, we have two versions of the Ten Commandments. One is in Exodus 20. The other is in Deuteronomy 5. There are differences between the text of both of those, and that is supposed to be, it's presented as, the words of God spoken from Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai from the midst of the fire on the day of assembly. They don't agree. So this, all of these things led scholars to say, we have to dig if we're going to find what was the authentic text. So I, I find this interesting. You mentioned a couple of really key points. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, you hear me flipping my Bible? This is what I do. This I hear it, yeah. So uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, I love this. It says uh, in verse 9, so your listeners can look these up. 
It says, Moses, I'm reading from the Jewish Publication Society, but it works well in whatever their translation. Moses wrote down the teaching or the law, as some translations say, and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the Lord's covenant and to the elders of Israel. Now, that one hit me because it's describing third person. Moses wrote the Torah, which fundamentalists believe, scholars doubt. But then it says in verse 22 of the same chapter, and this leads to your question, uh, verse 24 When Moses had put down in writing the words of the teaching or the law to the very end, let me pause. This is describing the completion of Moses' law book, but we still have three chapters left in the law book, right? You follow? Uh Uh-huh. So this strikes me, and it says that then he gives it to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, saying, Take this law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and let it remain there as a witness against you. So whenever Moses finishes, he takes a – I'm going to use the descriptor – little scroll. He rolls it or folds it. However, I threw that fold in for a reason for people who read the book. They put it beside the Ark. And then if you read the Bible from Deuteronomy all the way through, you do get references in Joshua, Judges, so forth, that reference that book, but it's not mentioned as often as you might think. In fact, we know that it got lost. And we know it got lost because of a story about a king that you and I were discussing earlier, a king by the name of... You got it. You got it. Uh, And this particular king is probably one of my favorite people of all time. You ever have someone ask you the question, if you could talk to anybody in history, who would it be? He's on the top of my list because he's appointed king at eight years old. His daddy is assassinated. And so Josiah becomes king, and he's kind of kept under tutors. Uh, but he's a very godly child, even as a young kid, according to biblical writers. But when he's a young man, um, he wants to reform and, and, and put a revival out. He wants to clean up the temple, which has been in disarray for decades. And so he commissions a priest by the name of Hilkiah, and Hilkiah works with a team they begin to work in the temple, cleaning it up, getting all the idols and all the icky stuff out of there. And he finds in this temple something quite important. He reports, I have found the scroll that Moses wrote. This is Second Kings chapter 22. Of course, you can imagine So they run to tell King Josiah, we found the scroll that Moses wrote, and this initiates the greatest revival, better than anything that's been recorded in history in the land of Israel. Idols are destroyed. The land is purged of bad. 
And this particular scroll is the impetus, the drive behind that. And, and so it's called the scroll that Moses wrote. So I believe that, that within the text of Deuteronomy, now a lot of scholars would disagree with this because they want to date it late. I believe that within Deuteronomy is contained what Moses actually wrote. Uh, and I don't believe it's late at all. I think that parts of it could certainly have been edited. There could be later interpolations. Uh, but the core of that document is authentically Moses. Again, that's arguable. Believe me, that any scholars listening could you know, give their rebuttal to that. But I think that there's good sound reasoning to support that. Oh, absolutely. And I think, too, the... Um the word for God, the Elohim, and um, that that was changed and or added to the Moses scroll at a, at a later date. Right. Is that what you suggested? Yeah, it is, and, and that's another excellent point. What we know is that throughout the text of the Hebrew Bible, we get different names. Uh, sometimes the deity is referred to as uh, by the Hebrew term Elohim are variations, El, Eloah. Uh, but Elohim is typically, if you look it up in a Bible dictionary, it's going to say this is a generic name for, air quotes, God, G-O-D. Um, but it's not his personal name. The personal name of God is represented in Hebrew by four Hebrew consonants, uh, yod Hey. Vav hey, if you're if you're referring to them by their modern names, and this name seems to be presented from a very early point. We we see this name of God in the Hebrew. Most of your listeners who are English speaking listeners probably read an English Bible, and most of those Bibles will have L O R D in all caps. Uh, mm -hmm. That's representing, according to the translator, it's out of respect. The Jewish people have a tradition not to pronounce the name at all. So early translations of the, the text into English, a lot of them followed this safeguard that was passed to them by Jewish sages and scholars. And so they, they would use a, a generic word, Adonai, instead of spelling out the four letters. So but here's the interesting thing. We meet with the name of God for the first time in Genesis chapter 2. By Genesis chapter 4, we read that then, meaning at this most ancient period, men begin to call upon the name of, and it gets the name, yod heh vav -Heh. Mm -hmm. Now, some, some you've, you've heard of Jehovah or Yahweh. These are variations on potential names, the way that it would be pronounced. But what's interesting, though, and it ties back to your question, is that we read in that text in Genesis 4 that the name was used in the most ancient times. But in Exodus chapter 6, we have God appearing to Moses, according to the text, and God tells Moses, by my name, Jehovah, I wasn't known to Abraham and so forth. But I was referred to as El Shaddai, which is uh -huh. translated, I think, wrongly, God Almighty. But uh, be that as it may, 
So we have a, a dispute here within the text. Was the name known at the earliest time, the primeval period, or was it only revealed as a covenant name in the days of Moses? So what scholars began to notice is that within the biblical text, if you begin reading in those five books attributed to Moses, you'll find sometimes we have what we call duplicates of the same story apparently told by different authors, different sources. And so in one of the stories, it's interesting, they note this, that the deity is referred to using the term Elohim. And in another text, which tells the same story slightly differently, the name of God is told uh, using the four-lettered name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. So is that the case? So scholars began to think that originally the deity was referred to by the term Elohim or a variation of that, and only after the revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 6 does the name become known. What's interesting about the Moses scroll, uh, this text that came into the possession of Shapira, is that it uses Elohim in places where the canonical text, or the, the text that we're used to in our Bible, would use the, the name of God. So Shapira thought, huh, that's interesting that God's name only appears as Elohim with the exception of an introductory sentence and a closing sentence in which most people, including me, would interpret as perhaps written by a later scribe. So the text was written originally just using Elohim exclusively, and then a later scribe was making a copy of a copy, perhaps, and, and he wanted his readers to know, these are the words which Moses spoke. Notice the third person, to all yeah. Israel, and so forth. You know, so. <clears throat> so when you, when you translated it, um, mm -hmm. yeah, among other things, there, there are the Ten Commandments, but they are, the wording is so different in the Moses right. scroll. I, I mean, it's it's way different. It's almost yeah. Um, it's repetitive on purpose, I guess. But it's it's. Um, I find it fascinating. I found it fascinating because you know, I've read the Ten Commandments. You know that that book sure. I read. Um, and 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 the verses. I mean, so. So do we have the rough cut, so to speak, and then over the hundreds, thousands of years, people have smoothed it out to make it read better? Is that basically what we have? You know, it's that uh, I tell you, I think that, first of all, as I mentioned a moment ago, when you look at, if you put side by side, and I've done this on my academia page, if you take the English text, you can do it in Hebrew if you prefer, but you take the text of Exodus 20, which contains the Ten Commandments, and you put it side by side with the version in Deuteronomy 5, you'll notice that there are differences between the two. Deuteronomy's version uh, has uh, quite a bit more. If you just counted the words, it has more. It's more descriptive. And there are even di – here's an example. 
the Sabbath, uh, you know, the Sabbath is, uh, according to Jewish tradition, from Friday evening to Saturday evening, sundown to sundown. And so the Sabbath, according to the Bible, is Saturday, Friday evening to Saturday evening. But we get two different reasons for why that we are to rest on the Sabbath day. According to Exodus's version, it has to do with the creation account. You'll probably recall reading that. God worked uh-huh. for six days in his creation, and then he rested, and therefore you ought to rest. Okay. But if you go to Deuteronomy 5, it gives a different reason, and, it, and I'm just giving the quick version, but it basically it ties it to the redemption from Egypt. And uh, the, the, the saving of the people of Israel out of Egypt, etc. What's interesting is that these two both claim to be the words that God spoke. Now, here's something else. These words were written on two stone tablets, which are called in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the testimony. In fact, we, when uh-huh. we talk about the ark, the word for ark is just box, basically. It's a chest. Those ten words that God spoke, ten matters, ten things, called the Ten Commandments, were written on stone by God's hand himself. It says he wrote them with his finger, uh, inscribed them or engraved them on these two stone tablets, which Moses then, remember he goes down the hill and uh, the mountain, he catches the people in their sinful act of worshiping the golden calf he throws them to the ground and shatters them he has to go cut another set moses does brings those two tablets up to god who writes the same words that were spoken on the mount from the fire gives them back to moses moses puts these in the chest now the interesting thing is that Whenever I started studying the ten words according to the Shapira manuscript, I was, I'm telling you, I had chills, and here's why. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, though they're not exact, they basically have the same ten, basically. There's no number one, number two. The Roman numerals we see now on the beautiful plaque that we hang in our kitchen is not what they look like. What we know is that uh, these ten matters weren't numbered uh, in the original. What's interesting about Shapira's manuscript, in fact, let me just say this. If you look at Exodus and Deuteronomy, and if you're a Catholic, you have a certain numbering. You know, this one is number one, and, and then you reach a stage where they split the coveting command where it's, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you know, and all this stuff is split into two. But that's only because they're trying to wrestle with the Lutherans have a version, you know, the Protestants, Catholics, they differ. Shapira's manuscript is interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, we clearly know where each commandment ends because every one of them ends with the phrase "Ani Elohim Elocheka." I am God, your God, or I am Elohim, your Elohim. And you can count them, one, two, three, all the way to ten. The other thing that's fascinating to me, and they would not have known this in 1883, 
So this kind of rules out to me, or it's evidence against forgery. Between every word, there is what's called an interpunct, a dot. Now, I'll give you the example in English. If, if I want to say, uh, you shall not kill, it would be you dot shall dot not dot, etc. Now, this is the reason this is so strange is because up until the discovery of Shapira's manuscript, we had no examples of text written in Paleo-Hebrew on leather, number one. Number two, we had no evidence on leather that anybody, any scribe, ever used these dots between the words on leather. It was only used on lapidary or stone inscriptions, just like the Mesha stone we talked about. That uh-huh. stone, dating dating to the 10th century BCE, it had them. The Siloam inscription in 1880 has them, but they'd never seen it. Now, here's what we now know. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there were 12 leather manuscripts discovered written in Paleo, all of which were attributed by the, you know, if you read them, it appears to be mosaic authorship, like fragments from what we call the law. Those all were written in Paleo. Now, get this. No other text at Qumran was written exclusively in Paleo. Some used the, wrote the name in Paleo, but only things attributed to Moses. Now, here's the other thing. All of those leather manuscripts contain these points are called interpunks. Now, how would Shapira know that? Or how would any forger in the 1800s know to fake something anticipating a discovery that would be seven decades after their death? How? It couldn't happen. No. So one other thing about the ten words is that they do read differently. One significant difference between the ten words in Shapira's manuscript and the ten words in Exodus and Deuteronomy Exodus and Deuteronomy both go back and forth between uh, first and third person. So the Lord created the heavens and the earth, you know, and so forth. In Shapira's, yeah. it says, I created the heavens. and I mean, first person? Are you kidding? When I read that, I, my hair stood up. <laughs> I, I have felt a like I was looking at the original. I, w- I understood I've been taught, you know, from childhood that there were Ten Commandments. But aren't there 613, actually? According to Jewish numbering, a great scholar by the name of Maimonides and and others have followed actually went through the text of the five books, the Pentateuch, and they uh, uh, classified and enumerated the commandments. These deal with agriculture. These deal with this and that. And, and the long story short is that that enumeration is 613. Very few people know that. You nailed it. Great job. Because, uh, but, but are there 613? Eh, you know, people can disagree. I've never actually counted it, and this is what I do with my life is study this. But 
but there certainly are a lot of commandments. But what's fascinating about most people would recognize that the basis for all Hebrew law, all biblical law, goes back to those ten words. If if mm-hmm. you um, you know if you go through those, those form the foundation, and then all others can be extrapolated from that core revelation that goes back to the mountain at Mount Horeb. So I think that what's one of the other things that's interesting is that all of those laws that we would find in Deuteronomy, let's just use Deuteronomy as an example, between chapter 12 and 26, 12 through 26 in Deuteronomy, is what scholars call the law code. And in that law code, there are more than a hundred laws just in that section of text. What's fascinating is that the the manuscript that Shapira came to possess doesn't have any of that material, which has been identified as later and priestly. And so that's one of the things that makes you look at this text and say, wow, this might be an early form of what was later developed into uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And not to upset any listeners, because I'm not suggesting uh, that I can put any of this on the definitive side. What I can say is that you you can trace sources by studying these texts closely. And I think, uh, to me, one of the things that that really is interesting is the lacking of that code and the centrality of the words that God actually wrote with his very finger. There's another Uh thing that's interesting in this text. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in our Bible, you have Deuteronomy chapter 27, uh, and this certain... uh, this certain thing is commanded by Moses. He says, when you cross into the land, you're going to divide the tribes with representatives on either mountain, Ebal and Gerizim. And, and you're going to, to, to pronounce the blessings and the curses. You shall say, and only the curses are given. It's, it's kind of a, it's caught the eye of scholars for a long time. Readers can go look at this. It says you're going to get the blessings and the curses, but Deuteronomy 27 only has the curses. And so that's interesting. But if you look at the Shapira manuscript, not only does it contain blessings and curses, but the ten words have a corresponding blessing and a corresponding curse. So, for instance, if it says, um, you shall keep the Sabbath or sanctify the Sabbath day, there's a blessing that says blessed is the person who keeps the Sabbath day, and there's a curse that says cursed is the one who doesn't keep it. Who, you know, <laughs> Fascinating that it ties together like that. There's nothing, no text like this that's ever been discovered in my opinion. Well, what, what kind of still has me... I, I do believe that that um, that the teachings of Mo- that I think I, I believe what he's got is the teachings of Moses. That uh-huh. to me makes the most sense. Now, if that's the case, and it was supposed to be put beside the ark, and mm-hmm. why not in it? Because in it you had uh, a bowl of manna and 
Aaron's staff, and, of course, the Ten Commandments. So why next to it? Why not in it? Well, that, that is a good question, and you're referring, uh, it sounds like you know your Bible really well. I know you're a spiritual person. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, the Christian Bible, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, mentions those things as being inside the ark. So you think, well, that's a great place for it, this box, and it's carried and cared for and looked after. This is the greatest, you know, it won't get lost that way. But right. if, you read the, if you read the Hebrew Bible and just the, what Christians would refer to as the Old Testament, you find a little bit different story, Barbara. So we know that the box, the ark, it's Aron in Hebrew, the Aron is created for one purpose. It's, for, it's, it's to hold the two stone tablets written with the finger of God. In fact, uh-huh. that's all it's for. Now, it is interesting, as you bring up, that Deuteronomy 31, Moses finishes writing it, even though the law book isn't finished yet, according to our Bible, and he gives this little scroll to the Levites and says, keep this beside. In Hebrew, it's misad, mitzad aron, beside the ark, and you're going to keep up with it, take care of it, track it, whatever. Well, what happens is, is that um, people begin to, you know, develop different ideas of what's in the box. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4 is not alone. Jewish tradition places other things in the box, but we have this interesting reference that comes from late in the biblical period. Um, It's mentioned in two places. As often as the case, we have a version of the story in the book of Kings. You know, we have 1st, 2nd Kings, and we have a version of the story in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Unfortunately, this material is often not read by people who really love God and want to serve him. It's not their favorite book. So they miss this. But in In Kings and Chronicles, it says that there's only one thing in the ark. Now, this is much later, and it says the only thing in there are these two stone tablets. I believe that that's the case. Now, what that means, Barbara, is that the scroll that Moses wrote could become lost Whereas if they would follow what you just said, and it could could have put it in there, it would have been kept up, it would have been harder to lose. But one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible is that the ark, the one thing that everybody looked to as representing the throne of God and the central piece of furniture – in God's holy dwelling on earth, the tabernacle, the temple, it disappears from history. It's gone. And look, the Bible doesn't say where it went. So here we've got two great mysteries. I'm missing, I'm missing, you're missing, the world is missing the scroll that Moses wrote and the ark that it was supposed to be beside. Well, another question. Yep, yep. Another question. If, you know, Moses finished this, handed it over, and said, place it by the box, but but one version says he gave it, I mean, that 
the only person that was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies was Aaron. And mm-hmm. and you're saying that he gave it to the Levites, which is a whole tribe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, you know, we're talking about all these different debates within religious literature. You're bringing up some of the reasons why this is what I do every waking moment is I study and I search these fascinating questions, these problems, if you will. So some people will get into the, this argument that is presented within the text is, is it only the descendants of Aaron who are the priests or were the Levites also important in, in the economy of God, in, in the setup, the religious establishment, uh, the theocracy, if you will? So there is this debate. Well, who actually – now what we do know is according to the text, you're right. Only the high priest is allowed to go into uh, the Holy of Holies. But what we find, though, is that one particular group carries the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and it's not Aaron, and it's not Aaron's sons. Now, if you, if you study it closely, what, what according to the text happens is this is a big operation, the setting up and the tearing down and the moving of the tent. I'm talking ancient Israel before there's a temple. Whenever yeah. this takes place, there are people assigned different tasks. And Levi, the tribe of Levi is descended, as you might imagine, from the son of Israel named Levi. Levi has three sons. One of those sons is named Kohath. By the way, your listeners need to know we're going to have a test on all this at the very end. They're going to have to know all of this material. But the the tribe of Levi, the sons who belong to the family of Kohath, are responsible for carrying the Ark of the Covenant and all of the holiest items. What's fascinating is that when Moses gets this scroll, it says he gives it to the Levites. A lot of people miss this clue. Those who carry the ark. Now, I believe that that's a clear and direct reference to this special family known as Kohath. This group is a fascinating study in ancient Israel. So they're the ones who are responsible. Now, here's something. Let's fast forward and see if I don't cover what you're looking at. Whenever Josiah's uh, priest Hilkiah discovers the ark, imagine it's been the temple, the holy precinct has been totally forsaken by kings, and, and the, it's, it's been in disarray. Hilkiah finds the scroll. Now, my question, when I read 2 Kings 22, 23, uh, 2 Chronicles 34, 35, you, you would expect that some, if I were the king, I'd say, hey, 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 did you, when you were in there, did you see the ark? Nobody even asked the question. Are you kidding me? I want to know where the ark is. I'm glad you found Moses' scroll. That's wonderful. Uh, but but what about the ark? Nobody mentions it. Now, <clears throat> it, what's fascinating to me is that a short time later, same period, there's a great Passover. You know, the festival of Passover is held in Jerusalem under Josiah. He sets forth this religious reform. 
and they have a Passover, it says, uh, that's never been one kept like this from the time of the judges, time of sin. This is hundreds of years since things have been done, as we would say, according to the book. And then, then we get this strange statement in Second Chronicles 35. Um, Josiah looks at the Levites, and he says, hey, guys, now go put the ark back in the uh, place where it belongs in the temple. Well, wait a minute. What, where has it been? Now, my question is, were those Levites who carry the ark, the descendants of Kohath, could it be, this is just my question, could it be that they've been taking care of it with concerns about it being messed with, if that's the proper way to say it, by someone who isn't holy or maybe one of these, God forbid, one of these evil kings could have had it destroyed, who knows? So then we have the story Josiah orders the ark back in the temple. Now, by the way, there's a prophet at this time by the name of Jeremiah. Everyone knows Jeremiah. It's my other favorite book of the Bible. Jeremiah is a prophet at this time. Jeremiah says some pretty challenging things to the religious leader of his day. Religious leaders, plural. He says some things that challenge the way that people would interpret even our Bible today. Like there's a lot of emphasis on the temple and sacrifices. And Jeremiah, it's funny, he seems to know something, and here's what I think he knows. We know that Jeremiah is a priest. He's in the time of Josiah. We know that Jeremiah's dad is named Hilkiah. Could it be, and I put forward this idea, that Hilkiah, the one who discovered the scroll, is actually Jeremiah's dad. Now, you could say, well, we don't know that. We don't, and there could be other Hilkiahs. But it is interesting that both are priestly, both are named Hilkiah, and here's my theory. See what you think. Hilkiah, the priest, in the days of Josiah, discovers the scroll. The, the ark isn't in there. He, he's got to get it to, to show the king, but could he, have demonst- could he have shown this to Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 15. He said, when your words were found, he's talking to God, I ate them. Now, I mean, he, he means metaphorically. I devoured this text. And what he speaks forward in the book of Jeremiah seems to agree with a form of Deuteronomy that matches more closely with what we would expect to find that predates our current Bible. I think he read that scroll. What's fascinating beyond that is that this uh, Josiah gets killed in battle. He's still a young man. A lot of people picture Jeremiah as this old, you know, with long gray hair and a long, kind of like uh, in modern culture, you would look at a Gandalf, this character in the movies. And But he's a young man in, during the days of Josiah. He, he goes from this point, after Josiah dies, 
Jeremiah is alive for several years beyond that. He says some really interesting things. One of the things that he says, this is in Jeremiah chapter 3, is that, I'm paraphrasing, you know the ark? There's coming a day when you won't even ask where it is. You won't want another one made. You won't even miss it or remember it anymore. Well, that's strange. The one thing, the book of, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, you're not even going to miss it? I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, you have <clears throat> you have the theory that it's in Ethiopia, which, um, you know, I keep coming back to that, where nobody has actually stormed the Bastille, so to speak, to see if the Ark of the Covenant is really there. But you've got one man that's lived there for his whole life, and he will die there. Um, yeah. Which You're which, right. There are several theories about where the ark ends up. So the last known sighting of the ark is Second Chronicles 35. Josiah tells the Levites, go put it in the ark. Your days of carrying it on your shoulder are over. The ark is brought into the temple. But then... We read that shortly thereafter, in 586, 587 BCE, the Babylonians come and destroy the temple, and, and we have a record of that in the Bible in Kings and Chronicles, where these the holy items are taken away. But guess what's not mentioned? The Ark of the, the Covenant. Yeah. Nor the scroll. So... You could say, well, Ross, you're being too picky. The writer just left that out. Are you kidding me? It's the main thing. Nobody's even going to mention, well, that's funny. Why did Jeremiah say that? Now, what if Jeremiah is a member of this Levitical family who's responsible for these holy items? And we have this one text that comes not from the Protestant Bible, but it's found in, in what is called the Book of Maccabees. The second Book of Maccabees gives this interesting quote, and it says that Jeremiah was um, uh, familiar with an oracle where he's warned to go hide the ark. He's told to take it across the Jordan, in Transjordan, on the eastern side, uh, of course, there wasn't a Jordan in, but, it, but it's in the land of Moab and Ammon and so forth. So this quote says, Second Maccabees chapter 2, that Jeremiah takes the ark and some of the holy items, and he goes and puts them in a cave in secret, and that they're going to remain there because some people with him tried to go find the way, like they wanted to know, hey, where did he put that? And and it's and he told them, he warned them against that. Don't follow me, boys. This is going to be revealed in the, the right time when God restores all things. So that's one theory that the, the uh, scroll that was found in Jeremiah's day, as well as the ark, um, were both deposited into a cave in the land of Jordan today, today's Jordan, ancient Moab. That, to me, is a very plausible idea. You mentioned the story about being in Ethiopia. There are people, I think Graham Hancock and some of these other authors have put together these other theories. The one about going to Egypt, you remember the story where the Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon, and 
he shows her all the beautiful things in the temple. Legend, this isn't in the Bible, legend says they had a love affair. They have a child by the name of Menelik. And the story about the Ethiopian place of the ark is that Menelik was given the ark, and he took it and secreted it away to protect it from being taken by, you know, whoever. I don't yeah, buy I, that I can, theory. No, I would I would say it's probably still there someplace in a, in a, in a cave, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it and, just... It, <clears throat> no, it doesn't yeah, seem that it would be a, it doesn't seem to me to be a safe time to have it come out because frankly the teachings of Jesus um in my opinion and and folks this is just my opinion um the teachings of Jesus are no longer really reflected in Christianity so mm-hmm. so that you know it, and and that's just my opinion um, and it changes right. on a real regular basis. So. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm the same way. I'm always searching and praying and seeking God on all these matters. And they are very difficult. And and certainly it's not out of line to suggest that, you know, Jesus, as we know him, uh, is best represented, at least partly, whether he's antagonistic or uh, the world in which his story is told. So you have... Uh, you, you have some elements of Christianity which try to seek to get back to what was it like in the first century in Judea and Samaria in the time when Jesus was here. So you, you, you question what were the original Hebraic teachings? How do we get to that? It's the same, by the way, with Moses, and I would venture to suggest uh, though I'm not an authority in any way on uh, the Islamic faith. But I think that it it could probably be argued that uh, Islam in some ways uh, needs to look closely, and many probably do, to to what is the origin of their faith. We all ought to try to understand as early as we can get. Early isn't always better, but early puts us a whole lot closer to what the truth is, in my estimation. And it goes for Moses and Jesus. If the scrolls were found. Mm-hmm. What would it do? And and authenticated, which of course they, they it would be very easy to authenticate them as far as time. Authorship's a whole right. other thing, but but time they could they could authenticate it to. What would that do to? You know, I mean, well, every Bible would have to be reprinted. I mean, what would it do to well, religion as we know it? You know, it's it's strange. Religion is a strange thing. Spirituality is something different, but religion is a strange thing. People, a lot of times, regardless of the facts, people often embrace that which they grew up with, and, and no discovery will turn certain people from, you know, the religion of mom and dad and grandparents, and they're steadfast. The example that we have in our day Uh, Some of the listeners are very young, some are old enough to remember, and some have read the stories. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as you mentioned, authorship is not necessarily uh, the answer that we get from the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we do get early samples of the text, which perhaps go back to perhaps a more authentic 
earlier strata of the text. I think if these scrolls were discovered, we would go through the scientific methodology to test them, put them through the rigorous scientific dating processes. We would certainly use special techniques of scanning to be able to read them in better form than they were able in the 1880s. Um, Beyond that, the question, the debate would rage on, and here would be the points. It wouldn't shake the world's faith. It would certainly do something for mine, but I think the (laughs) world would look at it, and they would basically say, okay, Ross, your scroll that you you tout as possibly one of the earliest manuscripts uh, of the Bible perhaps could be traced. Now, by the way, I don't claim, Barbara, that Moses wrote this scroll. I believe it's a copy of a copy, perhaps, of the scroll that Moses wrote, reflecting uh, that earlier composition. But I think if people found it and they dated it, let's say, uh, let's be safe and say it dates to a period uh, from which most of the Dead Sea Scrolls date. And I'm no expert, but let's say 100 BCE uh, to 100 CE, give or take. You know, clearly 2,100 years ago or more. I think that most people would then debate, okay, but what does this scroll tell us? And, and one of the arguments that scholars put forward, if they're willing to acknowledge that the text of the Moses scroll could be authentic, they say, well, it's sort of a liturgical text. It was a pocketbook Deuteronomy, like if... If you and I go to the same church, Barbara, and you say, you know, this Bible's really heavy, I'm just going to put together a composition that contains all my favorite verses and bring that with me on Sundays. It it might be viewed, yeah, a Cliff Notes version, that's right. Some people have put forward uh, the idea that this is, uh, one, is that it is, derived from Deuteronomy. Let's say I look at Deuteronomy, I write my favorite verses or whatever. Now, my research and certainly the research of other scholars in the field who favorably view the manuscript have ruled that out. And and they've proven, I think, we've proven, uh, that this text is not derived from Deuteronomy, but it seems to represent an earlier version which was later interpolated and added on to uh, and, and developed and evolved into the later text that we now have. Uh, so I think most people, to answer your question, it, it wouldn't make them change their faith, but I think they would certainly, if they were honest, they would have to answer the questions that they have to answer even now as they listen to me. Well, if if I've got the Ten Commandments, the central piece of the, the biblical law, and those texts don't agree in Exodus and Deuteronomy, my goodness, what does that mean? I mean, how do I interpret that or understand that? This particular Ten Word ca- uh, Command, uh, Ten Commandments, if you will, has a different version, as you pointed out. They're not ordered the same, and it includes though it doesn't add, a lot of people have reported it had an 11th commandment. 
There's actually only ten, but one of those is one that I wish the world truly understood, and it's love your neighbor is the way people understand it. Actually, what it says is don't hate your brother in your heart. This is this is a text which comes to us in our Bible in Leviticus chapter 19. I often ask my students and my friends, what would the world be like if we could embrace any one of the Ten Commandments, but particularly that one? Think about all that's going on in our world today. We're, we're bombarded with news of uh, literally in Ukraine and, and between Russia and Ukraine, and I find it interesting that Shapira was born in Kamenets-Podolsk, which is modern-day western uh, Ukraine, really. So I I wonder what it would do to the world if, please God, these leather strips are discovered. I would hope that people would give heed, and if nothing else, send them back to the Bible that they grew up with and they cherish and read the text that they have, even if they don't consider uh, a newly discovered text, you might say. Well, I think it, it opens up the door to so much pondering and and looking inside yourself and, and you know, what feels right to me and, and where where do I take this information. I think that, that um, the fact that, that his that Shapira's work, his life, his his focus is still something of, of interest and fascination would say that, that there's there's more than just his message here, there's the message of the scrolls. And it would seem to me that there's a, a greater possibility that because they were around in eighteen seventy eight that they're still around today. I don't believe they've been destroyed. Anything that could live you know live, survive that long can certainly survive another 140 years. I, I hope you're right, and I believe that in my innermost self. I really believe that these scrolls, these fragments, these manuscripts uh, will be discovered. I mean, it, it's, it's more than a hope. It's, it's really a hunt and a feeling that, that we can track them down, and there are many, many brilliant people who are working on this, what the good news is that we we formed sort of a little team. Uh, I mentioned my friends, the Tylers. We're going, and a, another Australian friend by the name of Joan Ovandor, we're going at the end of May and June uh, to Israel, and we're going to Jordan if possible. Uh, we're on a hunt. We went last year, as I said, to Berlin. We went to uh, uh, England, and we're tracking these down. But besides our travels, we have a lot of really uh, brilliant people, including Matthew Hamilton. I mean, he's, he's like a walking encyclopedia, and, and he's willing to share, as is Edan Dershowitz, um, uh-huh. who wrote the, you know, the book after when, when mine came out. Again, two weeks later, he published uh, his book called The Valediction of Moses, a proto-biblical book. Uh, we share one another, uh, share with one another our findings and our research because we've all decided none of us are in this for vainglory, just like we don't think that Shapiro was like that. We want yeah, one thing. Want. We want the truth. 
and and I think that we'll find it. I really do. I think that Moses Shapiro will be vindicated, and I'm presently working on two more books. How you say you're working on two books because the material is that vast um, that that I hope will be out in you know consecutive this year and then the following year that tell more of this story. Um, and everything that we've talked about tonight is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of this remarkable man and his contribution to the world of biblical studies. Contrary to what people have said about him, for 150 years, since 1872, his name has been tied to the idea of forgery. And Barbara, as much as I can, as much energy as I can put into it, for the truth, I want to see his name vindicated. And as Don Dershowitz once said, we want to see a street name uh, named after Shapira in Israel. Put it right there in the middle of Jerusalem because that's what he deserved. He's been wronged and, and uh, uh, mistreated and abused, and, and he's had to take it, but we want to redeem that character if we can. I, I do believe you actually will, and I just noticed the time. I wanted to let people know that. You can be reached at um, uh, themosesscroll.com and right. um, rossnichols at dot com. Right. So it's Ross uh, Ross K. Nichols at me dot com. Uh, I'm open okay. for emails and and people feel free to uh, to let me know what their questions or comments or concerns about this talk were, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, I so appreciate your taking the time out of your schedule to spend time with me tonight. I love being tutored by people who know as much as you do, and um, it's these shows are always such an amazing learning experience for me. Um, I, I if I was getting paid, I'd be embarrassed, but I'm not getting paid. So, um, <laughs> I would well, do thank this you if so I had, very if much I had for... to pay. Well, I, I really thank you and thank your listeners. I also value people's time and uh, the fact that you would spend two hours talking to me, Barbara, about one of my passions and the fact that these listeners would take time out of their busy schedules uh, to listen. I hope that it was informative and enlightening. And uh, please feel free to write me and ask questions. And And I, I hope you get the book and and, uh, and read it for yourself. The story is fascinating. It truly is. Oh, absolutely. And, and I do thank you again. Um, it's been a pleasure, and I want to remind everybody that this is a full week. We have a show Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So check us out. we got a lot of other interesting things coming. And I, I so appreciate, Ross, your being here uh, and this will be up on YouTube probably tomorrow. And if you people like what you see, please subscribe because that's how we know you're listening. Thanks so much, everybody, and good night.